This episode is brought to you by the Digital Marketing and Analytics for Sports Professionals course. Check out the show notes for all the details. You're listening to Sports Content Strategy with Mr. Richard Clark. I remember when I was started, it's very funny actually, because when I started and I wanted to write about rugby, everyone said, you'll never be able to make it as a rugby journalist. You're female. There aren't any female rugby journalists. And then I did it and became a rugby journalist. And then I wanted to do a weekly interview series in all sports. And they said, you can't, you're the rugby lady. And I thought at the beginning, I couldn't become the rugby lady. And now I can't do anything else because I'm the rugby lady. And we do tend to sort of put people in these boxes and it's quite a fight to get out of them. We'd have the Mail on Sunday office, which was a fairly decent sized office, and then the Daily Mail news floor, which would have been maybe three times the size. And then at the back, like a desk with the Mail Online people on. And then in my time there, suddenly people come there redesigning the office and we'd all have to shunt back a bit, shunt back a bit. By the time I left, Mail Online was most of the office and then the newspaper was shoved into a corner. The one they were going to announce it, they put a press release together and showed it to me. And it said, Alison becomes the first woman ever to become a sports editor of the national newspaper. And I, I went, am I really? Hi, welcome to Sports Content Strategy. My name is Richard Clark. My guest this time is Alison Kirvin, OBE, who I think we can safely say is a pioneer. She was the first female editor of Rugby World magazine and the first female sports editor of a national newspaper in the UK. She's also a novelist and she's just branched out and started her own sports media agency. So Alison's in a great position to discuss all sorts of issues around the industry of sports journalism, how the business of newspapers have changed, the digital changes that have gone on in the last eight years while she was sports editor of the Mail on Sunday. If you like this episode, please search out episode 22, where I talk with John Cross of Her Majesty's Daily Mirror. Episode 39, where I talk to Jackie Oatley, the first female commentator on Match of the Day and a very loud voice in terms of women's sports journalism. And episode 15, where I interviewed Henry Winter on sports journalism and social media. As I say, my name is Richard Clark. I'm a sports journalist, uh, sports consultant as well, helping clubs and leagues with their story, with their social media, with their content, with their communication strategy, digital marketing too. So if you need me, go to mrrichardclark.com or at mrrichardclark on all social media. So let's get into it. Let's talk sports journalism. Let's talk breaking down barriers. Let's talk the change in the newspaper industry. And let's talk about it with this lady. My name is Alison Kirvin and I'm a writer and novelist and um, I run a media agency called Gold Medals Media Agency. I was the sports editor of the Mail on Sunday until a few months ago. Yeah and you're very groundbreaking in your uh, role there at the Mail on Sunday and indeed rugby world but let's go back into your sports writing career because I want to show you this first of all. I want to show you that. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> now, when I first started as a journalist, this is a podcast, right? So for the benefit of the podcast, I'm, ro- I'm, I'm holding up Sports Writing by Alison Kirvin, which is the 1997 edition. Now, I entered sports journalism about 1994, so I probably brought, bought this first edition. Oh, and I read this because yeah. there weren't many books out that did the sort of cover-to-cover version of everything. And this was like the the sort of... The 101 for everything, I thought. I thought, And there's uh, stuff in the back like 
addresses of people to write to. This is how how much old media it is, you know. I know, and they're probably oh, those probably half those papers and magazines have disappeared now, haven't they? And all the people aren't working anymore. But it's um, it was it's interesting you say that actually because I did it because a I think it's A and C Black published it, and they had a whole range of books. Um, how to write romantic fiction, how to write comedy, how to write for newspapers, how to write for magazines, how to write news, everything except sports. So I wrote them a letter saying, you should do a sports one. And they said, well, send us a proposal then. And I, oh, and I didn't mean me to write it. I meant they should do one. So I put this proposal together and it, it came because there wasn't anything and there still really isn't very much. Yeah, and, and that's interesting because I now, I now teach sports journalism as well as I'm a sports writer and consultant and other things. But And I took bits out of your book, actually, to teach my master's students. But um, uh, the thing I want to talk about to start off with is the skill of sports writing. So what's changed since you wrote this book in 1997, one of the few books out that instructed people on sports writing? What's changed from then to now? Or what hasn't changed, I suppose? Yeah, the um, I think a lot has changed and a lot hasn't changed. So a lot has changed in terms of... Uh, the medium has changed dramatically. And I think it, during the sort of time I've been involved in journalism, even the eight years I was at the Mail on Sunday, when I started, my reporters would write for me on the Mail on Sunday. So I'd have a team of writers who would spend the week looking for stories and then the weekends covering matches and send them in. And then by the time I left, they also had to write for the Daily Mail because we were all writing across papers. They had to file for the, the, inter, for the uh, Mail Online website. They had to do internet shifts every morning before start. You know, suddenly the amount of work you do now as a journalist, and all, I mean, it's, it's almost too much. You don't have the thinking time you had. You don't have the glory of being able to actually spend time on things because they, the internet's a monster. It never ends. It needs to be fed and fed and fed, and, and you need lots of people doing it. So every little story, every little, you know, during a match, every 10 minutes, they'd be putting up, they're putting updates on there, as well as trying to write their own stuff, as well as getting to the press conference. And that simply didn't happen in the past. But I think the fundamentals of what you do, creating stories and bringing people to life and making people feel like they're at matches and kind of conveying the, the glory and devastation of sport to people hasn't changed. It's, but the medium has changed so much that it's had an impact on your ability to do things. So, um, yeah, so it's been a colossal amount of change, really, in terms of the way newspapers, magazines and websites operate. And just bringing in your novel writing, I, I read uh, Stephen King on writing. Okay? Yeah, 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 yeah. Which is a great book for writers. And one of the reasons he wrote it is because nobody appreciates the skill that he has, or he argued nobody had the appreciation yeah. because he's not a literary giant, shall we say. He's no. just a very popular writer. Yeah, uh, yeah, and, yeah. And, and bringing back that to sport, is the skill of being a sports writer underrated and indeed not considered a skill in the same way Stephen King wrote that book because being the type of novel writer he was, he didn't think gained enough respect? Yeah, it can be, although it's it's interesting. I think that's that might have changed a little bit because of the need, because sports writers have always written on the, if you write for Mail on Sunday, you have to send it by half time. You've got to send in half your copy. So you've got to have 800 words in. And then by quarter of an hour to go, you've got to have most of your copy in. And then on the whistle, you file the top of it. Then you do all your stuff for mail online. Then you run down to the press conference and the mixed area, get all the quotes, change it for the second edition. Then you ring people and change it for the third edition. So an ability to do that has now become very relevant in other areas. So if you're covering, so politics, for example, sometimes our sports writers do 
uh, work with the politics desk because when it's election night, the ability to write things quickly, sum things up and put things together and file them is, is now a skill that people appreciate much more because the internet demands that speed. So I think in a way in the past, because sport isn't life and death, because it isn't, you know, as much as we kind of, the, the language we use to describe it, it's all sort of inflated, but that's the fun of it, isn't it, that we all take it seriously, but we know ultimately it, it, it's enormous fun, because it's, it's not as serious as COVID, it's not as serious as politics. It was sometimes denigrated, I think, and looked down upon, but I think perhaps the abilities that sports writers have are appreciated much more now, because that speed is so important with the internet, so I think there might have been a slight shift, but you're right in that... Um, there's not enough going across departments, really, I think, in newspapers. You tend to be... I remember when I was starting, it's very funny, actually, because when I started and I wanted to write about rugby, everyone said, you'll never be able to make it as a rugby journalist. You're female. There aren't any female rugby journalists. And then I did it and became a rugby journalist. And then I wanted to do a weekly interview series in all sports. And they said, you can't, you're the rugby lady. And I thought at the beginning, I couldn't become the rugby lady. And now I can't do anything else because I'm the rugby lady. And we do tend to sort of put people in these boxes. And it's quite a fight to get out of them. Because as much as you want to be that person, you don't want to be that person forever necessarily. You want to do that. I've really enjoyed it. I've learned a lot. And now I'd like to do this. But it's, you can, journalism can force you that's your area of expertise stay there and it's quite hard to do lots of different things which I always wanted to do yeah and you were talking about being a, a sports feature writer which you were on the telegraph mm. just staying with writing a little bit before we get on to your your breakthrough roles as it were but being a, a feature writer on the telegraph feature writers kind of learn their skill set they have certain approaches certain ways of doing things and yeah. you, you evolve it as you go along that's the way I found it anyway what did you evolve? How did you start and how did you finish? What did you learn along the way? What, what were your approaches that, 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 that got you the best features, asked the best questions? I think, um, I, I think I started off doing lots and lots of research. And then I think, it's a mis I think it is a mistake now. If you're, if you're not careful, you've basically got to do all your research and then forget it. So you have to know that stuff but don't let it impact the interview. So if you're not careful, you end up saying, I saw that you said in the mirror, this happened. And then I read this and all you're doing is fact checking other things are the bit, you know, you've, so you've got to be able to take the fact that in 1977, the Telegraph said that he threw a cake at someone and take it further. Are you still that aggressive person? Are you so you don't, so it's almost like the research has to inform you, but you can't let it get in the way of an interview. You know, these interviews where it says, John Smith, comma, who once went to this school and did this and all everything they know about them is shoved in at the top and you think, you know, we don't need, this needs to take things on a bit. So I think the main main difference, I mean, was I do the same amount of research, but then I, I stop it and I write my questions based on what I know rather than bringing that research into the interview, which is a really hard thing to do. But I've got, that's the biggest skill I learned was to start again and, and try and find something new about this person or who they are today. Now I'm meeting them. Doesn't matter what I read about them in 2000 because this is the man here today, and that can tell. And I need to know what he was like then, but I mustn't bring it into the interview. If you know what I mean, um, I think the other thing was trying to uh, was being really aware because you, if you're not careful, I remember going to interview Nick Faldo. And he sort of famously hated journalists. And I thought, oh God, this is going to be a joy. This is, I was doing an interview series for the Times at the time. I did an interview every week. 
And it was always, I was only as good as the last interview sort of thing. I knew they'd stop it if it didn't work. I went to see Nick Faldo and I was going to meet him in his agent's office. And so I had all these questions prepared. And then I got there, I was heading off and the agent rang me and said, look, he's not coming into London today. Can you go to his house instead? And I, and I thank goodness I managed to think to myself, him in his house and in his world is going to be a different interview. So I sort of mentally bend all the questions I asked and just let it go. And he showed me around his house and showed me bits and pieces and chatted to me. And I got much more of an insight into the man than if I just stuck to the questions I'd written, if you know what I mean. And at one point, actually, it was, a, it was a really lovely, he arrived at the door in an apron, he was making breakfast and said, do you want some? And we kind of, and it was all great fun. I, and I, we got on really well. And then he said, um, come on, follow me upstairs and I'll show you something. We went upstairs and in the back bedroom, there's this huge telescope. So look to that and tell me what you can see. And like I said, I, it was sitting, looking into a neighbouring house. I mean, neighbouring, it was a long way away because they, they all had lots of land. And I said, I can just about see someone moving around. He said, yes, that's Elton John's house. I can see him at his piano sometimes. And that sort of stuff. If I hadn't just gone with it and binned the questions, that wouldn't. But then equally, if you're going to sit in his agent's windowless office in central London and sit there and the agent's sitting over there and he's there, and you're, you need questions because it's a different sort of interview. So I think sometimes the ability to to measure what you're going into, to have done the research and have the questions, but then measure it in the moment and get the best possible interview when you see where you are and what's available to you and what mood they're in and what, you know, sometimes you need different questions for different moods or different atmospheres. So um, yeah, going with it, being a bit more relaxed about it and judging what you're going to get in that moment was, was one of the key things. It's interesting because I think about that sort of situation now and Nick Fowler wouldn't just have an agent. Someone of his staff, no. there'd be a communications advisor, there'd be a social media team, etc. And yeah. they're giving away a lot of access. They're giving a lot of way, away a lot of content and content is now valuable. You know, yeah. so how how has it changed in terms of the gatekeepers, the gatekeepers keeping you away from that up close and personal having a look around Nick Faldo's house scenario that yeah. you ended up in? Um, I, I venture to suggest it'd be much harder today it, is, it could happen yeah. it'd, be, it'd just be more managed wouldn't it yeah you do and I think so you need so on a, a newspaper like the mail on Sunday the sports the um rugby editor the chief rugby writer really knows the players well you're, you're kind of really looking for people who will take every call and know everything and know the players really well so they trust him um you couldn't I would never use freelancers in that way again because they wouldn't get into their house they wouldn't get you know you you have to it's all about relationships and building these kind of um relationships so they trust you and will let you into their house but I do you're absolutely right because I remember at the start when I'd be writing about uh I was writing about rugby to start with and I really remember going around to Jason Leonard's house who was what, a very established rugby player at the time and went on to become hugely capped international player and we were sitting in I rang him and he said yeah yeah come around you know on the home phone <laughs> he said yeah come around so we did an interview in his kitchen and while we were doing it, Tim Robber came around to do his washing because his washing machine had broken up, broken. So he would go, don't mind me. And he was piling it in. So you've got all this lovely colour because then those two would chat across you as you were doing it and you'd pick up stories and they were calling him future England captain and things like this. And, you know, the, the, and, the, and Jason was saying, oh, they all laugh because um, he's gonna be, we think he's going to be the next England captain and we call him all these names. And then I remember Tim Robber saying to to Jason but you're very keen on the washing machine aren't you and, and they all laughed and it's because Jason when he first started someone interviewed first was first capped someone interviewed him and he said and said to him 
you must be absolutely thrilled to have been capped for England. He said, oh, yeah. He said, when I washed my shirt, I just sat there washing, watching the washing machine going it round and round and round. He doesn't hardly remember saying this. He said, it was just an off-the-cup comment, but everyone brings it out all the time about this washing machine stuff. So, and I got that because Tim Robert came around to do his washing and I was sitting there. So you'd pick up all these lovely stories, real insight into the, the relationships between the players and everything, which is much harder now because, you, like you say, you're... you're communications director and the somebody else director all sitting there and they can't tell you those great stories you know they they don't josh with him they sit they're very formally making notes and i think as much as that's a protection for the player it doesn't always do them a service because i think players can come over as more rounded and human and likable and relatable certainly if they're allowed to talk and be themselves and i don't feel constrained by someone sort of worryingly hovering in the background so your claims to fame, for want of a better phrase, is first female editor of Rugby World and yeah. first female sports editor of a national daily, which was the Mail on Sunday. Why you? Why did you get that? Why were you the first female for both of those, do you think? Um, gosh, that's a good question and a horrible question, obviously. I think with the... Um, I mean, there's a certain amount of luck and timing involved. You were there when, you know an editor left and you've got that opportunity. I think a lot of it is contact, meeting people and staying in touch with people and, and, and being willing to, not to give advice, that sounds like patronising, but be willing to comment and say what you think and say, oh, I love that piece there. Why did you do it? I mean, with the Mail on Sunday, I remember uh, Geordie Gregg, who was editor of the Mail on Sunday at the time, he's now editor of the Daily Mail. I'd, he, when he was at Tatler, I'd written bits and pieces for him and he, when he got to the mail on Sunday, he talked to me about the paper and what I thought about it. And I looked at it, I said, oh, I love that piece. Actually, I really enjoyed that, but I wouldn't have put that there. It was odd you put, I'd have put that there. And I was kind of more chatting to him about the way the paper sat and the story sat and what he thought about things. And because perhaps because I was willing to chat and comment and we'd argue about things, he then called me and said, will you come in again? I really want to talk to you about something. And then offered me the job of sports editor. So I suspect in that, in that, time it was the fact that I had lots of ideas and I said he said what would you have done so oh, I'd, what I'd love to have done is get this and that we could have tried this and put but you know even highfalutin we put we should have put someone it was the British Lions tours about to go or something and I said we should have taken the captain and put him into a in with some lions could we get him in with like and and you can see him looking at me like I was nuts but I think he liked the idea where there were lots of ideas there and it was a bit different and there was something that he quite liked and because I was talking about wanted to campaign and change that we could be for the good of sport that we could give back as well as take from sport and be part a really important part of sport and he, he just I think that just he just really liked that so he um he kept calling me back and and that and it's funny with the whole female thing because actually I didn't know that there'd never been a, fem a female and then when I when they were going to announce it they put a press release together and showed it to me and it said Alison becomes the first woman ever to become a sports editor of a national newspaper and I, I went am I really and they said yeah 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 we've double checked it and you are and, and I'm blimey and I it wasn't I didn't set out to break any barriers particularly other than I when they offered me the job I thought yeah I want to do that I want you know um so it's sometimes perhaps it is just about speaking out and saying what you think and having ideas and not being afraid to challenge or something like that I don't know um it was funny actually when I got the rugby world job which was a that I mean that was a really interesting one because there really were no by the time I did the mail on Sunday one there were lots of women in sport but when I did 
became rugby world editor, which was 1995, there were very few women involved in rugby, very few. And I remember uh, my friend ringing me and said, I've got good news and bad news. I said, oh God, go on then. And she said, well, the good news is Edwina Curry has just mentioned you in the House of Commons. She said, someone said something about women not liking to watch sports or something. And, and she said, well, does the honorable gentleman know that the editor's favorite rugby magazine is now a woman? I said, oh, that's good. I said, what's the bad news? She said, everybody booed. <laughs> and I sort of think, I mean, it's a, it's a sign of the times. The idea of a, po a politician now sitting there and booing a woman getting a job is, is crazy, isn't it? You can really see how things have come on. Um, but it's also a reminder of how difficult that was. And people were ringing up the time, when I got the job on the Times, people were ringing up and saying they were, they were never going to buy the Times again. And really? you sort of think, gosh, yeah, really. Yeah. I became rubber, rugby editor of the Times from Rugby World. Well, I did rugby well, then I became rugby editor of the Times and then moved into chief sports feature writer. But when I became, they put meet our new rugby editor on the front of the Times and uh, people ringing in and saying they weren't going to buy the Times anymore, which is kind of, which is, I mean, it's just so silly, isn't it? They don't, the idea that you, you can't be good because you're female. I mean, the assumptions they made about me purely because I was female are ludicrous, aren't they? Because... I could have been good or bad and it wouldn't, it's, that's not because I'm female. Like you're just either good or bad, aren't you? And they didn't, you know, and the paper that day that they announced me was full of stories I'd written, which were new and fresh and different. And, but uh, that didn't matter. What mattered was that I was female. So that's all very interesting, really. But, but often when um, somebody breaks through like that, yeah. there is a situation where one person's breakthrough or the door is open for one person to, to prove there's no problem. And then the door yeah. is totally closed behind and nothing happens yeah. for a few years. And it yeah. seems, it seems that I'm not sure if that happened or not. I'd be interested in your opinion, but yeah. it's taken a long time for the sharp acceleration we've had in the last four or five years where you're yeah. getting a lot of female sports reporters to come. And is that the way you see it or how yeah, yeah. You progress afterwards? That's my point. Yeah, that's really, it's really interesting. Uh, when I, so when I got the job, when I, I was offered, uh, they, they, I was features editor and there was a deputy editor and the editor left. So I decided to go for the job as editor of Rugby World magazine because I wanted to become, I assumed the deputy would get it and I wanted to get his job. And I hadn't been there very long. So if I, I thought if I don't put myself forward for this and show them what I can do, what, they'll make him editor, they'll bring in another deputy and I'll be stuck in this position. So I thought I'm going to go for it so they can see. And then they might say, make her deputy. And then I got the job. Um, but I know there was uh, the I was offered the job by the sort of department head, the way I was IPC magazines and they were all divided into sections. And when she told the chief executive, what she did, he said, why have you done that? It's political madness, gone, political correctness gone mad. And she said, well, I didn't really think about it. Like, should I just chose the best person? And, I th and it was it's quite disarming, isn't it? When you say that, she said, well, you want me to not choose the person I think would be best for the job? And he said, no, no. But it seems odd. She said, well. Maybe it is odd. Maybe it's a bit different, but I just I genuinely chose the first that I think will be best for the magazine, and that's the end of it. So it all had to be defended back then. Their decisions, you know, that was kind of couldn't just let lie. It was all all questioned and um, all the rest of it. But it's uh, that's cha that's changed now. That's changed a lot, a lot. It's interesting because I'm going back to and holding up your book again because yeah. you wrote that at a relatively young age. That book on sports writing yeah in your career and I'll yeah, think, yeah. Well, that, that's a confident thing to do and yeah then you're putting your opinion forward that's a confident thing to do and then you're moving into novels which we'll talk about in a bit which is a confident yeah. thing to do and I relate that back because 
sports content strategy, this podcast, I've done, I think you're number 83 I've done. And mm. I really struggle to get women to come on and talk to me. They say really? no. They say, that, they say, oh, I think about it, I think about it. And then they don't come back. And I'm you know, rolling back on what we talked about. There's still a lack of confidence. There's still a yeah, lack yeah, of confidence. Yeah, 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 yeah which I don't yeah. think you struggled from or certainly you were pre- or certainly prepared to put yourself forward in a way yeah. that they're not. That's a better way to phrase it. Yeah, it's interesting because I wouldn't, I mean, I'm confident in some way. I mean, it is an odd thing. I think, and I think generally confidence isn't a trait we admire as much in women as men. And you can, you know, you want men to be bold and confident and women be slightly meeker. And I was, ne- I was never really like that. <laughs> But also, I think you get to this, I mean, perhaps it's being older, when you get to the stage where you sort of think, you know, I know I can do that. What's the point of me not telling someone? Or I know I can help, or I know I can, I don't. But yeah, confidence, it's, it's an, it is a really interesting thing. Because, because one thing I found, when I was on Rugby World, when I was, sorry, when I was on Mail on Sunday, because it, it, I was asked to give lots of talks and, thing, and, and things like this, a lot of the time I'd go into companies would ask me to give a sort of keynote speech or something, and I'd talk about what it was like all the silly stories about being a woman in a man's world and then at questions at the end a lot of women would ask questions and say things like oh you know um, what do you think can help and there'd be really per- sort of issues like um all the pe- men in my department go off and play golf and because I don't play golf I don't and they make all the decisions on the golf course and I said so what do they say when you tell them when you, when you say to them I've, you know you play as much golf as you want but we need to make decisions together as a team you know I'm happy to make you a drink after I'm happy and she said oh no I'd never say that and I was kind of quite uh, because it obviously is really worrying her. And that's not an aggressive stance. You just say to them, honestly, I'm really pleased you're all playing golf. I don't play. So why don't we have another time when we make all these decisions? And she said, God, I could never say that to them. And I sort of think, God, well, you've got to, you've got to, otherwise you're never going to get this sorted. And you're obviously worried about it. And there are always lots of questions where they just haven't even taken the first step in confronting it. So I think there is perhaps that still hovering over us that we don't want to be seen that for a lot of women they don't want to be seen as too pushy or too aggressive or but um you've got to haven't you you've got to be able to stand up for yourself and and yeah. i think people who think less of you for that aren't really worth worrying about are they that, well yeah it's a it's a world in which you have to the concept of what they now call a personal brand is really yeah, yeah. just pushing yourself forward isn't it it's really yes just, that, yeah saying yeah. i'm good at this because and then stacking yeah. up various things behind it um yeah. i want to talk about the the business of newspapers um, you took over Mail on Sunday Sports Editorship 2013, I believe. Yeah, 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 just after the Olympics. Yeah. yeah, so it's eight years, eight years. Yeah. And digital's kind of gone through the roof and taken over um, yeah. the, the, the traditional um, one of the, the, well, a lot of the main traditional uh, revenue streams of newspapers. Um, yeah. I, they're not sold on the in the newsagent anymore, uh, and the advertising models are not based on the print. They're based on the yeah. on the on the on the website uh, clicks or app clicks or whatever it may be. And um, how did that affect your job? That change. Um, yeah. Well, it, I mean, physically in the office, it was quite funny because when I started, we'd have the mail on Sunday. So I'm using my hands and we're on a podcast. So we'd have the mail on Sunday office, which was um, a fairly decent sized office, and then the 
Daily Mail news floor, which would have been maybe three times the size. And then at the back, like a desk with the Mail Online people on. And then in my time there, we don't, suddenly people come there redesigning the office and we'd all have to shunt back a bit, shunt back a bit. By the time I left, Mail, Mail Online was most of the office and then the newspaper was sort of shoved into a corner. So it was the very physical side of it where you, is it, I mentioned it because you could see it growing literally before your eyes. And over those eight years, I think it went from, you know, Mike and Pete do the internet at the back over there to all these young people, because they tended to be younger, who were really kind of bright and with it and the rest of it, have taken over most of the office. That's Mail Online. And then the Mail on Sunday over there and Daily Mail are here. So it, there were, you, you really saw it growing. I think um, it affects the job in that when you've got, if you're a newspaper and you've got a newspaper website, like I was saying before, you have to be involved in providing them with, copy with words so your journalists get pulled a bit further um i think it's uh, it, and obviously it's very on the mail on sunday you have time to sort of sober reflection so you hear a rumor and then you send some people out to research and they talk about it and you work out whether it could be true and you make more calls and then you go for it on mail online you hear you know you hear a rumor and you it's, it's all about who's first really so if you don't get it up there, the Telegraph do. Uh, we also have these issues where if I got a great story on, so I say I heard on Thursday that um, Eddie Jones was going to retire as manager of the England rugby team. And we, 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 we were told that he was going to announce it on Monday. You think, great, that's a great story from Mail on Sunday. But then you're worried all the time that he might announce it slightly sooner and then we miss before our deadline. Therefore, we should give it to online so they can break it. So at least our group's broken the thing. And I and you hold on to stories sometimes and you're so worried that the Telegraph news site or the Guardian news site is going to break it. And you've had that story, but you didn't give it to online. So there's always a kind of, the story, the, a story's ability to last has, has reduced, you know, breaking stories is really hard because um, something happens and they, no one is allowed to can mention it anywhere in the world or it'll be on a, web, a website somewhere and then you've broken our, exclusive so that's much harder um and the days of the news of the world sort of leading the way with all these exclusive all the time uh i mean ignoring the sort of dubious means with which they got the stories that, that those days of newspapers breaking big stories it, it's it is much harder it, it doesn't happen very often if you break a big story it tends to be something that's come from you so you've launched a campaign or you've got someone with brilliant contacts who've been researching behind the scenes if, you, if a story falls into your lap or you, a reporter comes back and has overheard something, it's very unlikely a last or Sunday. So you are all the time weighing up whether to try and keep hold of a story. And that sort of leads to the potential of brevity, of lack of research, of lack of journalistic chops going down into a story because yeah. it's so much under pressure. There's no yeah. such thing as deadlines anymore with the, with, with in, the internet. There's, yeah, no, yeah. There's, there's no such thing as deadline. It, it goes no. up whenever it goes up. And, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and so have you seen, have you ever had concerns about the quality because, you're, well, your speed is becoming more important than quality? That's yeah, mine. well, on the, no, I mean, that's one of the luxuries of Sunday papers is you still do, I mean, I still do have reporters who, um, my chief sports writer, Oliver Holt, would still spend the week working out what sport meant that week what it was all about what what features he would do that would really and his column would kind of try to highlight 
not just what happened yesterday, but what this week meant. So if you put all his columns together for the year, you should get a proper picture of what that year really meant in terms of sport. Um, so you, ha you have reporters who you keep back from that and they write more featurey, more in-depth, more analytical pe pieces. Um, and, but it tends to the reporters out at games tend to now have to kind of find stories and fly them off to online. And it's, it is harder. I mean, I, I think if I were on daily, that might be more of a worry to me, to be honest, because I think on daily newspapers, it's very hard, very hard now. But on Sundays, you can still, you have that luxury of time to do things well. The Digital Marketing and Analytics for Sports Professionals course is your road to digital excellence in sports. Take this unique opportunity to be at the forefront of digital trends and developments in the sports industry. In this unique 20-hour annual recurring program, we introduce various digital marketing tools and discuss global best practice to help you build long-term digital strategies. This live and on-demand program is brought to you by Track, powered by Victoria University in Australia and in collaboration with Sports Cloud International. This year's programme starts on August 31st, 2021. Sign up at digitalmarketingforsports.com.au. That's digitalmarketingforsports.com.au or follow the link in the show notes for this episode. And of course, there's a whole genre of journalism, journalism, they call it, which is yeah. kind of reverse engineering the uh, SEO. Yeah, what, yeah, yeah. What do the clicks tell me that people want? Okay, I'll feed that beast rather than yeah, yeah. thinking what's be the best story. Did you ever fall? Well, I suppose on the Sunday, yet again, you didn't have to fall into that trap, but it seems to have affected every aspect yeah. of journalism. And it concerns me as a. Yeah, as a, as the a editing pro I mean, again, my, uh, so my job was never affected by that because I, I would edit it and my team, not just, obviously not just me, we'd have a team of people who would, we, and we'd spend a lot of time thinking, what is it when a guy or a woman walks into a cafe tomorrow morning and sees the mails and then picks it up and reads the sports page, what do they want? What is what has moved them this week what do they and you spend a lot of time being the editor like that but when it comes to online so much of it is um driven by clicks and obviously they set it all up but it it's not curated in the same way so if you have a picture of kelly brook half naked it gets a million clicks and rises to the top and then once it's at the top it gets more clicks because it's more visible and it and so it's directed much more by readers or viewers which in a way you might argue oh that's a sort of very demographic way democratic way to run it but you also there are some stories that are more important and so you, to a certain extent you're di you, you are different in newspapers from online and sometimes I look online at what newspapers have done and I'll read the stories and then I'll have to go and buy the paper to see because I'm really interested in whether they put that on the back or did they put it on page seven where was it where where because they got that story they know how much faith they've got in it and if you read it online it might be might look really impressive but they've only put it on page 14 so you know that they don't have that much they don't hold that much store by it. So, so the, I still, I still feel the need to read the papers as well, because it's a diff, it's a very different thing. Yeah. And that, I suppose that brings me on to feedback loops because the, the other thing that's happened with digital is feedback. Yeah. I mean, I, oh, I yeah, grew lots up, of feedback. well, yeah, too many to be honest. I mean, yeah, I, I, never I, read I, below the line. <laughs> I started on the order shot news, right. And um, in 94, I think it was, 
And I always knew if I got a letter and it was a fat letter, it was a complaint because they'd sent me a bit of the newspaper to prove how uh, yeah, wrong yeah, I was. Yeah. Right? That yeah, was my, yeah. my feedback loop and what people said to me. Yeah. And uh, it's interesting, a previous podcast, I interviewed uh, a former editor of Roy the Rovers, and he used to ask the kids to send in a little form and say what your favourite stories were. You know, if you sent in a competition yeah. slip, you had to, there's a box at the bottom, what are your two favourite stories? And he made a chart out of that, and that was his feedback, because that's yes. the way it was then. You've yes. been in journalism at a time when those feedback loops have totally closed, and you get up to the minute feedback of yeah. what people like and what they don't and as you said yeah. some of it is going to be raw google analytics and some of it is going to be sentiment um leading to you know campaigns you should run or higher quality yeah so how, yeah 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 so how do you balance yeah. those two out you do um i mean again we i would only, i would only ask if i was particularly interested in an area but it's interesting things like so on on i mean mail online is the one that i know i don't mean to just talk about mail online but it's the only one i would know with any um or sort of authority at all really but they would like when it wasn't a premier league weekend their figures were right down even if there's a even this is a, a, a world cup match where england are playing that the premier league drives everything to such an extent and i and on the and that is mirrored on the paper on the Premier League weekend. Our sales go up, and the only other thing that puts sales up are royal weddings and big royal stories. But Premier League weekend, if there's not a Premier League weekend, sales drop. So there's a commercial imperative to cover Premier League weekends that you know from the feedback of sales of papers, um, and you certainly know from online. Um, but also you have to be. I mean, Mail Online's people who. Do you call them viewers or readers? I don't know. But readers of Mail Online um, are younger. And uh, the average reader of the Mail on Sunday is mid-50s. With the Daily Mail, it's a little bit like early 50s. So those papers are sort of for 50-year-olds, 40, 50-year-olds. And then you've got Mail Online, which is really used much more by younger people. So the feedback isn't always doesn't always work for the newspaper there's can be sometimes um that like the boxing is massive online huge online and it's really important in the paper too but not like it is online they want every punch and every and all the little videos and and it's a great sport for online and we obviously cover it in great depth in the paper but it's not like right up there like it is online so sometimes you have to be slightly you have to be sort of like cognizant of the different readers that you're aiming for and they also have the ipad edition of the paper which is it's somewhere in the middle it's for 30 year olds so it is to a certain extent pulling people through from people if, if they go it's interesting isn't it that's i mean that's another interesting thing people who read mail online now will they ever buy the paper i don't know whether young people have ever bought one and what would make them suddenly buy one because they just you know i've got a friend who's um head of shakespeare studies at university of london and he said when he puts notices on notice boards, they come along and take pictures of it. Whereas I'd be the opposite. If I get an email, I want to print it out, to, you know, because for me, I much find it much easier to read the, and I've got bits of paper all over the place here because I find that easier because it's what I'm used to. Whereas younger people want it, find it easier to read on the phone because they can open it up and look at it and store it. and They're more adept. So I wonder whether that's changed now and we're not going to pull people through to read papers because those days, people, young people have no history with papers they've got all their information online i think the other thing that always concerns me about newspapers is shareability because you know i grew up my dad bought the daily express i got into newspapers because yeah. it will be lying around well i yeah. read all my news on a tablet 
or on a, yeah. on a on a on a laptop i can't share that with my son in the same way or leave it lying around for him to yes. have a look at and in the same yeah. way you know netflix is is often an individual thing because you're watching it or if you're anything like my family that people are in different rooms what, yeah. watching things on different devices yes there's shareability but the concept of a newspaper i mean it used to be that a newspaper was read by three people right one newspaper yes. read by yeah yeah that's people. right the readership is way above the yeah 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 and yeah. And, and i'm not sure that's i'm not sure no. that exists with physical newspapers and i'm even not sure that people share articles they might share them on twitter that's but what I'm wondering whether it's a different nature shareability yeah i suppose the sharing happens on social media doesn't it have you seen this piece in the Daily Fail, as they always say? <laughs> exactly. Just to go quick, quickly and talk back about women's, um, the growth of, of women's sports journalism. What yardsticks do you have as to how well that area is doing? You know, what suggests to you, OK, we're breaking down barriers here, we're breaking down barriers there? Um, uh, that's a really interesting, because, because we've talked about how newspapers themselves are shrinking um because you know readership's going down people who advertisers don't necessarily want to advertise in the paper because they see like you say they see a response online they know that they got a million hits and what that translates into sales so um so newspapers are shrinking so what what's tended to happen i don't i mean there have been some redundancy programs on newspapers but a lot of the time just someone leaves and they're not replaced whereas in the past then you'd recruit someone new and so there aren't lots of new women coming into newspaper because there aren't lots of new anybody coming in <laughs> you know what I mean so pe- I remember people saying to me why have we not recruited any woman I've, I've recruited one woman but after that I didn't recruit anybody because well, the team stayed the same and when people left we didn't we just tried to make the cut the new team do a little bit more work to cover them because you're always because costs are such a big thing in a declining market so that so it's very difficult to judge that I suppose I would judge it on the number of inquiries or, or letters I had, but maybe we, we go back to confidence again here, actually, because I would go and give lots of talks um, at, I did a few talks at universities, but mainly to company, companies and things, or at um, sports writing festivals and things. And I'd talk about, or be interviewed about my life. And then someone would say, um, so why, uh, how many letters do you get from women and why or do you not have more women employed? And I'd, I remember up until about a year before I left, I'd say I've not had one single letter from a woman asking for a job, which to me, and I think generally when it comes to women's success, the problem is lower than the top. The problem is that local newspapers such as they are or websites or wherever the training ground is now isn't full of women trying to get up. I don't think there are many there. So I wasn't getting many letters. If I was getting tons of letters from women, I think I'd have tried to set up some sort of scheme to, you know, to encourage them to have one uh, new female sports journalist join every year. And But there was no, I wasn't getting the letters. And I go around and do lots of talks and lots of radio interviews and things like that, but still wouldn't have people approach me. And then after I'd said this, of course, then I'd get a letter from someone saying, hi, I met you and I, but then they didn't have the background because on a Sunday paper, you need, people who really have good contacts to be able to get the stories you want. So they've got, you know, Marino has got to take their call and they've got to be able to get you the stories. And if they're just working for their school magazine or something, you know, they're a long way off being able to come. And I, th- I, th- and I think it's the same with sports administration and with a lot of, a lot of areas of sport or a lot of areas where women want to achieve. It's not about the top strata. It's much lower down. Bernice Bloom. 
Um, yeah, Bernice Bloom. Just, I'm very keen on Bernice Bloom. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, um, I wrote novels under my own name while, um, while working as a journalist. And then I took the job at the Mail on Sunday and, one, and I had this idea for doing a series of novels about someone, a sort of Bridget Jones type novels, but about someone who was overweight. Um, but that was kind of, it, it was at the same time, the centre of the story and nothing to do with the story. So she, she wasn't all that bothered by it, but, for, but it, she just was very overweight. So she, that was a sort of central part of her character without it dominating all the books. Um, and I wrote these books and I, I went to I was going to put them up on Amazon as sort of self-published books to give that a go and then I thought it might be a mistake to do them under my own name because I'm sports into the mail on Sunday and it, there might be a sort of disparity there so I I tried to think of a name of someone who I thought sounded like a fat American <laughs> so came up with Bernice Bloom and actually and I put up the first one and um they, and it sold loads. It sold really well. So I thought, oh, I'll do another one. I'll do another one. And I was kind of mimicking, rather than doing big full-size books, 80 to 100,000 words, these books are about 20, 30,000. And I was trying to mimic that box set mentality that we'd see Netflix do. So often you haven't got time to watch a film. So you'll watch a once, um, for an episode of a Netflix series. And then at the end, it moves you into the next one, doesn't it? And, you, and then before you know where you are, you think, oh, this has started now, I'll watch this. And you went, you're four o'clock in the morning, you're on the fourth one trying to stop yourself. And I thought, I, I quite like that. People are, so I thought, if I do these books and at the end of it, you know, first one it says, but would she die? Or, you know, whatever, do little um, cliff endings and into the next one. And I did them all like that so that people were buying them and then, clicking to buy the next one um, and they were cheap and short so it was more like a box set thing and it worked really well it's been really good fun and I've I haven't done one for a while but I'm started getting emails and I go when are we having the next Bernice Bloom and they're very silly and very light-hearted and this character I send her on a cruise where she bumped into an ex-boyfriend who she told when she finished with him she told him she had a, a disease that was going to kill her and then she bumped into him and he's amazed to see her looking so well because of course she'd lied she wasn't ill at all and it's all they're all very silly she goes on safari and gets stuck up a tree where she goes to escape from her and they have to get up cranes up to get her down again it, it's just um and her mother's watching on laptop with her tennis friends it's all just really silly and funny and um quite sort of it's I mean people just say it makes them laugh and so you think well you know I'd quite like writing them so a little distraction in the background <laughs> well it's a very entrepreneurial approach and that brings me to my final question which is you've um you're poacher turned gamekeeper aren't you now you're the, you're a you're a you're a media agency you're a gold medal yeah media. well what i decided to do you're probably interested in this is because all the way through my career you meet lots of pr people who are some are good and some are, some are very good some are very bad and there's everything in between but none of them seem to really know what a journalist wants and you get, you know, they'll come up with some, send some press release on and hidden in it is quite a good story that you would have used. But you, I don't read press releases. There's no point in sending me press releases. And then, and it would come sort of on a Friday night or something or just after, or on a Sunday. Hi, you're the mail on Sunday. You might like the story. You were out today. This is the worst day, you know, there's a whole week there. Or they send you an invitation to come and interview some player and you get there and there are daily newspapers there. Well, of course, we don't want to do it with the dailies because they'll put it in their paper tomorrow. And then it's useful, useless for us. By So I just, and I'd always frustrate me that, and I always say, why don't you take advice from a journalist? You could ring me and just ask me, when's the best time to let you have this? So what I wanted to do was, and this is very much a sort of, 
side hustle, if you like. You know, I just I set up this agency, which in which I just use journalists. So if somebody wants advice on working with the media, I've been working with a new golf league that's setting up called Premier Golf League. And, and it, I just have journalists advising them, telling them when to do the when to get when to contact. And then the journalist rings up all the other journalists and tells them about it. And it's it's using journalists to tell you about journalism, which to me feels like the most natural thing in the world. But it's um, and they've had really, really good results because, of course, the journalist sends it just before the sports center goes into conference. So you can take it into conference with them and then you give a ring after conference. So how did it go? Do you need anything else? And it works. So, so there's that. And also there's a storytelling element to it because obviously the best way to get in the papers is to present stories. So I've got some novelist friends running the storytelling bit of it. So this is sort of ticking around along in the background. Um, and some of it we just do to help people. There's a few um, new uh, in, uh, sort of projects to help women in sport that I'm, we just help it. I'm not charging them or anything, but for the, uh, but then for some of the more professional ones, we've been charging the journalists get paid, the freelance journalists who are sort of struggling to get work in lockdown and everything have all been gainfully employed, running around doing courses and things. So that's been quite fun. One more if I may. Okay. <laughs> what are you most proud of? What are you most proud of in your career? Not that it's over yet. <laughs> I'm not saying no, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I, the, the thing I'm most proud of is when I worked at the Mail on Sunday, when I first got there, well, actually before I even got there, I I looked at a, it was a British medical journal and they'd done a piece about boxers' brains and the whole punch drunk thing. There's a picture of a boxer's brain, a picture of a rugby player's brain. And the piece was saying we expected to see the boxer's brain bashed to pieces. But what we've discovered is the rugby player's brain is worse. It's more damaged than the boxer's brain. And I contacted the surgeons who had discovered to thaw the uh, neuropathologists behind these discoveries of these brains um this incredible surgeon and i went to see him and talked to him when, and then i started on rugby world magazine on um a on sunday and i said we need to really look at this i think there's an issue here this uh, all these surgeons i've talked to were absolutely they couldn't believe a contact them they've been trying to tell the governing bodies for ages that there's a real issue with concussion that players are getting concussed and, and they're going to die, you know, they're going to die young and they're going to, and it's eminently preventable. And the reason their brains are worse than boxers are because if a boxer has a fight, doesn't fight every weekend. He just, he has his set fights. And if he hits the ground, that's it. About what we're doing rugby is so we get up. Do you know what day of the week it is? Saturday, right, off you go again. And it's that second impact syndrome that causes long. So I just went off on a complete, and we just, we campaigned for six years. And when we started, nobody, no other papers picked it up. No one would take us seriously. And we went to parliament and we got some politicians behind us and they, and then slowly, and then the um, Radio 4, um, the morning show uh, picked it up today and they did, a few things on it then I've got rugby players offering to donate their brains to science after they died and people like Lewis Moody talking about finishing a match and not knowing his name or how to get home and didn't he tried to ring his wife he couldn't work out how to use his phone because he'd been so badly concussed he said never thought to mention it before he said but that happens all the time and these surgeons then sitting down explaining for the paper we did it all the paper what that means and what science to look out for so we set out what I called protocols and there's now been appropriated and they talk about concussion protocols don't they on the matches but we set out these five protocols that we wanted by the end of the campaign and we got them all and it tried and it it was a, it had a huge impact I'm really really proud of that you do so much in journalism where you're just trying to find 
information out just for your benefit just for your paper to look good on Sunday to beat the others but with that I feel like we really made a difference so that's definitely what I'm most proud of. Alison Kerwin thank you very much. Thank you. You can find Sports Content Strategy on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Go to sportscontentstrategy.com for more information and to sign up to the newsletter. Richard is at Mr. Richard Clark on all social media. Read his blog at mrrichardclark.com. Sports Content Strategy.